Howdy, howdy. You're listening to the Pennsylvania Grazier Podcast. I'm your host, Eli Mack of Mack Farms, and I'm really excited on this episode to have had the opportunity to sit down with Isaac Tappenden. Now, you might recognize Isaac as one of the faces around Greg Judy's farm, Green Pastures Farm in Missouri, and you might also recognize him as a voice on the Chewing the Cud podcast. Isaac was a great sport. He sat down with us to talk about stockpile grazing and some of his firsthand experiences there. So without any further delay, let's jump right into it with Isaac. All right, tonight I'm excited to have Isaac Tappenden from Green Pastures Farm, where he's a herd manager there for Greg and Jan Judy. Isaac, thanks for joining us here tonight, buddy. I'm really excited to have you with us. Yeah, thank you, Eli. I'm, I'm really excited to be doing this with you and collabing and, and being able to share all what our knowledge has with others and, and uh do what we can to help people improve their grazing skills. So really looking forward to, to this. So, yes, sir. Well, we appreciate having you in the community here. Um, I guess just start off telling us kind of what your day looked like today down there at green pastures, anything wild and crazy going on or weather, anything like that. Yeah. So we've been dealing with a little bit of uh, snow recently. We got hit with a mm-hmm. winter storm. We gave us a nice eight inches of snow, which kind of, kind of stalls out the grazing side of, of sure. what, we're, what we're doing this time time of year and so we've been feeding a lot of hay recently but this today we got we hit a 50 degree day and we melted most of, most of the snow off and so from from coming from today we'll be grazing again so that'll be good which kind of leads into what we're talking about a little bit but um, yes sir so so we fed some hay this morning and then we actually drove down to jefferson city um, and did a little mini field trip today to look at some heifers that a guy has that Greg's uh, going to be marketing for for him. And so uh, we went down and looked at them and talked with the the gentleman and, and his brother-in-law and um, had, had lunch with them and then came back up here and did chores this evening. So it was kind of an easy day today, but um, cool. some, you know, part of, part of, uh, part of the joys of working here is, you know, Greg's not afraid to take the time to, to go and do things and, and, and really try to teach us things as far as, you know, different off, off the farm opportunities and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it's really cool to get a day like that. And it's just good for um, your spirits in the winter time to be mm-hmm. able to have a, a break <laughs> yeah uh, from the farm for a day or whatever. So that was kind of cool today, but no joke. No, I get that. We had a, a little bit of a thaw day yesterday where things kind of melted off. And then today we're kind of back to a refreeze and everything's really slick out there. But mm-hmm. um, we had about 10, in, 10 to 12 inches of snow hanging around for a good while. And we've had two kind of uh, thaw days where it's melted down and now it's just compressed and a little bit more icy than anything. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's nice to have those breaks where things look hopeful there for a minute. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Kind of gives you a glimpse of spring a little bit. But, yes, sir. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your journey for anybody who hasn't been following along or or doesn't know who you are and how you ended up where you're at. Can you give us just uh, a quick trip with you as far as how you ended up here at Green Pastures Farm um, and, and what you do now and kind of what your role is there? Yeah. So I, I come from, uh, for those that don't know, I come from southern Michigan, a little town called Bronson. Um, had about 85 kids in my graduating class, so kind of small, um, mm-hmm. small rural town. Grew up, you know, my dad has 40 acres, and so we, you know, we'd build forts in the woods growing up or go hunting or, 
you know, just grew up outdoors and, and, and we would raise our own pigs and chickens for meat just for our own consumption. Um, and, and, and then we also hunted in the fall to get venison. And so growing up the, the farm to food, um, dynamic was very, I was very close with that. And that really had a big part of my life growing up. And I always kind of knew, you know, being on the land and, and, and producing food for people and farming is, is, was something that I really wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I knew that at a young age, um, I was fortunate enough to, to, I, I don't know. I just, I just knew in my heart that that's what I wanted to do. And so, um, I found out in junior high somewhere around then uh, about like polyface farms and, and just kind of dug into that rabbit hole and, and just got deeper and deeper and just watched just about every video on YouTube of, you know, polyface or any, any kind of like, you know, regenerative farm that I could find, um, around senior year in high school, uh, maybe halfway through my senior year, I stumbled upon Greg's videos when he started. And, uh, I had watched Justin Rhodes video about, uh, the great American farm tour where mm -hmm. he traveled the country and, and toured different farms in each state. And, uh, so I, I saw Greg from there and then I saw that he started posting videos and, so I, you know, I started watching those like crazy and, and watched probably almost every single video. And that next yeah. fall I found out I, I had just graduated that spring. And then that next fall um, in August, I'd applied for the internship. Uh, I, I knew I found out that they had an internship. And so I applied and um, got brought onto the farm in November to, uh, to check or, you know, to do like an interview process and um, made the cut and showed up the next spring here. And then, and the rest is history, as they say. But um, yeah, so I've been here since 20, uh, April of 2020. The first year around, I was um, staying on as an intern. And then that fall, the first fall here, Greg and Jan came up to Ben and I and asked if we wanted to stay on an additional year as, uh, you could say, like apprentices or, you know, quasi yeah. like interns or whatever. Yeah. And, and so we both decided it was a good opportunity and we both... Uh, decided to stay. And then we brought Connor on, um, that following spring. And then, um, uh, fast forward to last fall, Greg and Jan, um, gave me the opportunity or they all gave me the offer of staying on full time as an employee, um, having the opportunity to build in to, uh, into their herd, you know, buy into their herd, um, build yeah. my own herd alongside while I'm working here. And, and, uh, it, it was a it's a pretty sweet offer and I, I i couldn't resist so i'm still here and 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 i got the uh a new position here and i'm i'm pretty excited for the future here and what entails and where you know what that leads me to you know leaving here in the future maybe or whatever so absolutely yeah. and i think uh yeah i mean when you look at farms that a lot of people turn their attention to or kind of get hooked on it's it's usually either like a polyface crowd or a greg judy crowd you know in the yeah. u.s at least those are like the farms that people notice and really grab a hold of and we gravitate towards and i think it's such a cool opportunity for you and a launching pad for you honestly for for what you want to do yeah. in the future and mm -hmm. i'm stoked that you're you've bought into the herd and you have a few head of your own there um greg is the person that launched me into grazing world um mm -hmm. actually at a at a grazing conference i attended up here in pennsylvania and he just turned my world upside down with what he talked about that weekend um oh, man. Yeah. and even at, even at that conference he said hey one of the best things we can do for this younger generation 
is give them a piece of the pie, you know, like, yeah, let them build it alongside you. And so I was stoked when I saw your post about, you know, the, uh, the cows that you had bought, I was like, heck yeah, man, that's, that's the stuff right there. So I'm, I'm very excited for that. How are they looking by the way? I appreciate that. They're looking good. Actually, one of them, um, Oh, 34, she, yesterday I was looking at her and she might be, she's kind of springing a little bit, I think. So she'll, yeah, you know, she's hopefully this spring going to calve and you know, I'm going to be a little bit of a nervous wreck at first, but or, you know, just watch, you know, eagle eye watching, making sure everything's going all right. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty excited about that. Greg and Jan are just, you know, they're super generous and and they've been, they've been great to work for and, and to, and to, to kind of partner with, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trading my labor and my, my experience that I've gained now for, you know, what they're offering me. And it's just, it's, it's a really good relationship and I'm really fortunate and, and grateful for the opportunity that they've given me. So, yeah. Yeah. It's cool. how many heads do you have? How many did you buy? I have three. Yep. Three. They gave yeah. Me the opportunity to buy three a year. So, and good deal. Um, yeah. And every, you know, every, every calf I have is mine. So that's, that's pretty cool too. Is yeah. just the opportunity to, to grow it. So, yeah. And, to, and to have your foot in the door with, judy genetics right off yeah. the bat i mean that it doesn't get much better than that yeah it's hard that's hard to do i mean especially now the the, the amount of uh uh exposure or the market that greg has developed through his youtube like they're just hard to get i mean yeah people just you know it's hard to get them and so i i feel real lucky to <laughs> to have my you know have a hand at or have a get a hold of some of them so i have to have a start from them but yeah well, we're going to dive into a topic tonight with stockpile, but just a few more questions from just around the farm there to kind of help people get a get a feel for you and what you do and what you're around every single day. Um, just wanted to kind of, if I had to, to pin you to it, if you had to pick your favorite enterprise on the farm or the, your favorite aspect of what you guys do, is there a favorite that you could say, yeah, I enjoy this more than all the other things? Because it's like we've got cattle, we've got sheep, you've got the livestock guarding dogs. You've got a sawmill. Uh, yeah. Still doing mushrooms. Yep, we're doing mushrooms. Okay. We, we actually did a civil pasture. We're doing a civil pasture project, and we've got close to fifteen hundred logs that we're going to be inoculating. So that's going to be yeah. a big, big lot of work coming up. But yeah, yeah, um, yeah. My definitely my. I mean, what drew me to the you know to this place was the cattle, obviously, and that's probably takes the number one place is just you know cattle moves and and just working with the cattle and 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 trying to learn how they think and how they work and the best way to to manage them to get you know your best return your best profitability your your best you know ecological expression um but a very close second is operating a chainsaw man you put me behind yeah. a chainsaw and i'm a happy camper i could cut all day and <laughs> oh, you know making civil pasture or just cutting firewood it doesn't matter to me um i just love it something about it but um, yeah, those would definitely be my, my two favorite things that we do here. I think. But. Good deal. Good deal. No, silver pasture is a good word. That's going to be, I think it'll probably be the next episode that I record is oh, yeah? going to be with, uh, Austin from trees for grazers. Oh, yes. I actually just um, talked with him the other day. Yeah. We're, we're going to be doing a collab with him. Um, we're purchasing 50 of the Hershey honey locusts that he's been yeah. promoting and so we're going to be planting those this year i'll be i'll po i'll be posting about that to see you know show how it goes and stuff too but yeah that's super exciting yeah no i'm i'm stoked for you guys in that project those are great trees great genetics that he has i'll be seeing him here this next week at the uh 
Southeast uh, Grazing Conference there in Lancaster County. Oh, sweet. But, uh, yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. guy. Yeah. He knows his yep. stuff, that's for sure. <laughs> so for everybody listening, stay tuned. We've got Silva Pasture with Austin coming up. That's going to be a good one too. Um, Isaac, is there anything – This is, you might have to think about this one. Is there anything recently that you learned – um that just really stands out to you right now like is there a lesson on the top of your head that just kind of i don't know you had an epiphany recently anything that you observed or learned definitely so one of the the big things is uh or one of the hardest challenges which is going to tie in really well with what we're talking about later is is just winter management and Mm. um i i kind of came to the realization this this winter that like there's you know, there's never going to be a perfect winter or there's just never going to be perfect weather in general. But in the wintertime, especially, there's always going to be, you know, a period of mud. There's always going to be, you know, a period of intense cold or, you know, uh, tough stuff to get through in the wintertime, especially with yeah. livestock. And you just got to take that for what it is and recognize that that's going to happen and and manage through that the best you can do whatever you can in your power to you know, help the situation, but just understand that that happens and that the land is going to heal over time. Even if, you know, you tear it up and pug a spot, you know, so badly that you think, oh, this is never going to come back. It'll come back. Um, I've seen it firsthand. When I first got here, there was mud, like the whole, you know, the, the first three paddocks that they'd been in since, right before I came to the farm, um, it had rained like five inches each day. And they mm. I mean, cattle were just pugging it like six inch deep pug marks. And just the whole field was mud and you can yeah. even drive the four wheeler out to the cattle. It was so muddy. And, and now you go to that farm today and it's completely covered, healed over with sod and there's good fescue growing on it and some orchard grass. And, and it's just a testament to, yeah, we do the best we can when we're managing um, livestock. We do all that we can with our knowledge and with our, you know, with our capabilities and sometimes things just go wrong. And, and, and that's where the beauty of, you know, the whole system works is that it will through management heal itself over time. And so that's just been a cool, or, you know, it's been a great um, relief or uh, lesson that I've learned this winter is just to, just to kind of get through the, get through the hard times and it'll fix itself eventually. So, yeah, yeah, that's definitely. No, I can agree with you there. Um, I've definitely had those moments where it's winter and you get that thaw and then you get some rain with it and you look back at a paddock and you're like, Oh my goodness, what have I done? Like this is never going to be the same, you know? And it's just that mentality because you're in winter mode. You haven't seen anything green. Well, in my case, you know, I hadn't seen anything green in how many weeks now, you know? Yeah. Um, And you just think that it's totally ruined, but you have to bring yourself back to no. And, And like you said, with management being the key word there, we do the best we can. And yep. we try to prepare for these things And in a way, winter is almost like a, a drought plan. Like if you just sit there and keep telling yourself, yeah, but it, it'll rain eventually, you know, it'll rain eventually. You're, yeah. you're probably not heading for good things, you know? So if you approach winter expecting it to never thaw and get muddy and then get rained on and then freeze again and then thaw, you know, yeah, we, we kind of have to be ready for these things and, yeah. and just do the best you can. But right. no, that's a great answer. Yeah. Great it's, answer. It's a, it's a good, uh, it's kind of a relieving factor when you see something that you're just like, ah, oh, I just messed this up. And especially, you know, in our case, 300 head, 330 head makes a mess very quickly. You know, yeah. if, if you get a, if you get a, 
uh, a trail going or you know a, a, a pinch point where they they all walk through oh man if and, and if you have any kind of moisture in the ground it's just it just turns to it's just terrible i i hate the sight of mud now um, yeah but like i said it'll it'll get better um just give it a little time as long as yeah. you know, it'll heal itself <laughs> yes sir yes but, sir yeah well one more primer question before we jump into the topic and this is a question that uh i think i've started and i'm going to continue asking anybody that i have on the podcast it's just what is your working definition of regenerative agriculture? Because that's kind of the, the biggest theme that this podcast revolves around besides grazing, besides, you know, management tips and tricks like regenerative agriculture is what a lot of us are after and want to see happen. So but but there's a lot of different ways that people define regenerative ag. So I'm just trying to create like this collective collage of what regenerative agriculture is. So for yourself, how would you define regenerative ag? So I'd I'd say uh, it's it's a it's a type of agriculture that that's founded on uh, farming in a way that increases your fertility, it increases your ecological health, it increases your diversity of species, um, in many ways it increases your your profitability. Um, it's it's uh, agriculture that over time heals itself and uh, um, is just a is just a complete cycle of you know life death decay life death decay and and uh you know just growth and and, and uh health um th those are the words that really come to mind is like health and and like increase or what can you what can you you know put into yeah. it to then you know increase it or whatever um in in, in a natural way so that's that's kind of my what i would view as regenerative agriculture sure and as I hear you rattle off those things, I just kind of think of you'll know it by the fruit that it bears kind of situation. You know, yep. Um, yep. you'll start like diversity, I think, is a huge one. You know, if something is regenerating and you're building into soil and you're building into communities, you're going to see diversity. You know, you're going to see health of functions of those communities. Yes. Come to exactly. the top, you know, um, all that stuff. So that's good. I'm not going to push it any further. I might even do an episode here in a little bit that is just like defining regenerative agriculture. So I don't want to spew too much on that, but that's, yeah. a, that's a great answer. And I appreciate your take on that one. Well, thank you. Yeah. But, uh, without further ado, let's jump into stockpile grazing. And in a similar fashion, if we're going to talk about it, we might as well define it. So Isaac, can you define what stockpile is? Stockpile is, is, uh, what I would call saved forage for a time when it is not growing or a time when you need it. Cause you can stockpile forage for a drought. You can stockpile forage for the winter. Um, right. you know, just forage that you put away or that you reserve so that in a, in a future date you're able to use. And, you know, it's kind of the same thing as stockpiling. Like if you're stockpiling ammo or you're stockpiling food, you know, it's the, it's the same kind of concept. Right. Put it away for the rainy day. Exactly. Or the dry day exactly. or the frozen day or whatever kind of day it may take. Yeah. The nasty weather of day or whatever. Yeah. 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 So why would somebody stockpile? How and when does it make sense for us to, to do this action, to take this course? What are the benefits of stockpile? Well, number, number one, um, one of the biggest costs of a grass fed operation or, you know, a grass based, um, cattle operation is feed costs in the winter you know the the, the cost of hay or the cost of if you're feeding uh 
any kind of like alfalfa pellets or some kind of like supplement, you know, that's, that's some of the biggest costs that grass, you know, producers or grass farmers um, face in the, in, throughout the year. And so by, by managing in a way that you're able to stockpile forage, a cost saved or, you know, a cost stated making money in, in a way it's like, you mm -hmm. know, something, a penny you don't have to spend is a penny you get to keep. And so um, that's huge when, when you're talking about today's prices of, you know, commodity beef or, you know, like sale barn prices, if, if you're trying to market your animals in a way like that, you need to be focused as much as you can on, on minimizing your costs. And so stockpiling forage is a, is a, a great way to do that because because of the amount of costs in it, um, that occur in the winter time um, a, a, a round bale so let's just you know say here in the in this area you can get a, a good quality round bale of hay for around 65 dollars and it's probably you know this year it's going to be a lot more because of the the prices of fertilizer and stuff but we'll sure. just go for from last year um so our herd takes we did, you know, we did the math of cattle need 3% of their body weight for maintenance or you know, mm -hmm. to maintain their body weight. And so mm -hmm. we've done the math and it comes right about to uh, five and a half uh, big round bales of feed per day. Um, so we okay. usually feed about three bales in the morning, three bales at night for the herd if we're doing just full feed hay. Well, you think about that cost, that's uh, $195 in the morning and $195 at, at night that if you can, if you can gray stockpile with that many head in our situation for that time you know that's how much you're making you're making uh what is that two no 380 no 390 dollars a day for the herd you know you're saving in, in the form of hay um sure. and so you have to start adding that up over the winter time you know 180 days maybe longer than that and that that adds up to a huge cost saving um and so and the way that, that we do stockpile, which we'll get to in a little bit probably, is a little different than people. But we're we're stockpiling our whole farm at the same time. And I'll I'll explain. I can you, you want me to explain right now how to how sure, we do that. Sure, go ahead. Yeah. Um so we the way so stockpile season, what we call it, starts way back at the beginning of August is when we start thinking about stockpile. Um in August, we really t uh, slow the herd up a little bit and and tighten them down and, and try to get a longer rotation one because it's it's starting to get hot and dry usually so the grass is growing slower but also because we're trying to buy some time in front of us um, to let the grass grow while it's in that dry stage and mm -hmm. then once once we get into what we call like the stockpile mode which is like mid to late august we start speeding those cows up again and we're moving very quick almost as quick as we are in the springtime when we're trying to manage spring flush and okay. what we're doing with the reason we're doing that is we're trying to just barely tip the forage. We're trying to go through and just take like the top two inches of the grass. Um, because when September comes and you get some of those September, October rains, if you've left the, all your farms with 12, 14 inches of leaf there, um, that you've, you know, after you've grazed it, that is going to come back so much quicker than if you've slowed up your animals taking it down to, you know, a couple only have like three inches of grass left. And so in the fall, we're speeding these animals up so that when we do catch a rain, the whole farm is going to come back that much quicker and you'll grow mm -hmm. that much more forage in the fall. Um, and so we're doing that all the way up until about uh, October 10th, 15th, somewhere in there. We, 
we get the first like killing frost and that's yeah. when the grasses will start to like you know get hit in the face and they'll realize oh winter's coming we need to slow down and that's when they'll really start to slow their growth they'll still grow a little bit at least here in missouri um but they'll definitely slow up a lot and so once that that um that time frame hits that first frost that's when we'll start to we'll make one last pass wherever we're at we'll make one last pass just tip grazing it as we call it around mm -hmm. the whole farm taking the top one third of the grass and that that'll usually get us up until about uh mid-november and end of november maybe if if we have a really good stockpile year and then once we get make our first pass around the farm taking what we'd call the candy uh the best part of the grass that's when we slow them up considerably we start feeding hay and we start grazing like our winter stockpile so um we'll start taking them down taking the grass down to you know two only had leaving about two to three inches of residual for the spring to come back Okay. Um, so we're slowing them up considerably, taking the, the last, basically the last two thirds down and then supplementing with a little bit of hay in with that. And what we found this year that really makes a big difference to uh, animal health or animal uh, like spirits or mentality is if they can get, even if it's just like a bale's worth of feed or like a third of their diet and feed every move. So we move them twice a day. If, if we can give them a little break of stockpile and two bales every move, they're so much more happy happy than right. if we give them a full feeding of stockpile and then a full feeding of hay in the same day. So we've sure. been trying to do that this year is just ration it out to where we're always giving them a little bit of hay, but we're always giving them a little bit of stockpile too. Because those cattle just love the you know, they just love to just move onto new ground and right. it just lifts their spirits in the wintertime. So yep, I get that. I get that. So we touched on it here just real quick before we move off of it. So the one question that came from Hobart Farms was, how short can we take stockpile grazing on our last lap around? And I think you alluded to that you guys will do two to three inches and try to leave yeah. it that for spring regrowth. Yeah. Um, and I would I would agree. And in the savory world, you know, we would say you can overgraze something when you return to the paddock too soon. You stay in the paddock too long without moving on or springtime, you come back to something before it has, it has recovered or regrown, you know? Yeah. Um, so in, as we're heading into this dormant season, we've already passed that kind of frost kill. Um, that last lap, would you agree that we are in less danger of quote overgrazing um, by grazing of root energy is what I mean there. Um, yeah. We're in less danger of that because we're in that dormant, stage yeah that's a great point um once that once that grass goes dormant you really don't have to worry about you know grazing too hard and and uh you know you can take it down like that like i said that two to three inches we just like to leave that much residual just because in the springtime that grass comes back that much quicker yep it's got a little bit of carbohydrates to go off of um but yeah once that frost has killed it and that fescue you know if you're if we're talking fescue country once that fescue has um you know, starting to turn brown and, and, you know, still has some green in it, but it's starting to really, you know, lignify up. Then you don't really have to worry about hurting the plant at all because that plant's done growing for the year. It's already got its roots, roots stored. It's, you know, it's, it's just holding out until spring. Um, nothing yeah. else is going to grow anymore, really. So you, you really don't have to worry too much about hurting the grass. And also another point to that is once, so um, a huge problem with, grazing or with kentucky 31 fescue 
and I'm sure you may have problems with it. Um, we definitely do is um, fescue foot. It's what they call fescue foot. And that's the mm. endophyte that's in the fescue. It's a, it's a fungus. And when cattle graze it um, and, and eat a lot of it, ingest a lot of it, it, it cuts off blood flow to their extremities, like their feet, their ears, their tail. Right. Um, and so um, in the summertime, that endophyte is cranking. One, it's it's very present in the seed heads, and it's also very present in that top two to three inches of the um, plant, right near the base of the the root. Um, mm -hmm. But in the winter time, those endophyte levels just drastically decrease. And so th that Kentucky Thirty One fescue, that in the summertime it makes kind of hard feed if if you're grazing it too hard, you know, taking it down. Now in the wintertime, the endophytes almost almost nothing, and you almost don't have a any trouble with it and those cattle will go in there and just you know they can graze it and not have any troubles and it makes really really good high quality feed in the winter time plus right. it's also got so that that or that endophyte has a symbiotic relationship with that plant i don't really know exactly how it works but it it helps give that plant it's like the fungal bacterial you know relationship but it gives that plant almost like a uh, immune system boost and so that plant will be super healthy and, and vibrant and it'll put on a real waxy coating. And you, you, you can mm -hmm. tell that's the difference in the summertime. Well, that waxy coating is really what helps that fescue stay green. Most of the grazing season, you know, the winter, the, the dormant season. Um, and that, you know, that, so Greg is a huge, huge proponent of Kentucky 31 fescue. And, and, and he believes, you know, that, and I believe too, that that's the, one of the, key pieces to this whole operation is the fact not only does it make great winter feed it also has a, a great sod that keeps the animals up keeps them out of the mud a little bit you know um, right because it's a it's a real dense um, thick sod that can hold an animal up for the most part unless it's like right. but in that case everybody's struggling so so let me pitch this to you as we talk about endophyte and um so you can get endophyte free varieties of fescue, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess this would just divide people on camps of, you know, how all natural or holistic you want to be about something. But would you encourage somebody to go an endophyte free route? Or like you're saying, do you like seeing that symbiotic relationship between the fungus and the plant and everything that's happening? So here's the dilemma with the endophyte free um in order to get that you know there's like different i think there's different varieties but the one i'm familiar with is the max q fescue i think i can't remember who it might be monsanto who's promoting it i don't remember um don't quote me on that but sure sure um in order to plant that max q you've got to have a dead or you know a complete kill of every of all your kentucky 31 that you've got on your farm and that is mm. extremely hard to do because of how mm -hmm. hardy that that uh, Kentucky 31 fescue is. So a lot of what they're recommending doing to plant it is to go in there and spray Roundup, kill out all your grass, and then you know see you know drill it in in that Max Q fescue. And even with that Max Q, over time that Kentucky 31 is just a more vigorant plant and it's going to work its way you know there's just so many seeds out in the environment there's it's just going to yeah. work its way back in um just and it's just a matter of time and so yeah it does it does make better feed and the cattle eat it better and they don't get the fescue foot and i don't want to say that it doesn't it is a better quality feed than the kentucky 31 
but just the methods and the and the ways that you've got to uh, the things that you have to do in order to keep that uh, end of fight free right. fescue on your farm. I think they just far outweigh the benefits from it. And plus, with the Kentucky Thirty One, if you're managing correctly and and in the summertime you're not taking the grass down too short and you're not making the cattle eat it too low, those end those that end of fight toxicity is is most present in that bottom six inches so as long as you're not grazing you know below that level you really don't have too much trouble with it um i mean we'll we'll get a few that have uh you know that'll get fescue foot in the year especially if we've you know limited them on accident and pushed them a little too hard um but for the most part you just don't really see it um and also i i will say another thing too is greg's animals are very you know the genetics that he's developed over the years are very tolerant of the kentucky 31 fescue if something can't handle it he just gets rid of it and so that's Mm -hmm. that also is a huge part of the system is having genetics that can take the fescue and do well on it and not you know not really be affected by it but i mean you know management goes a long way and, and if you're managing your grass in the summertime um and you're you're not taking the, that fescue down too short it's really not too much of an issue and then mm-hmm. just the benefits that you get from it in the winter time are just I, I mean they're just through the roof um yeah it's just great winter feed but and i guess crazy. another good good it's crazy there's still green fescue out here and we've had snow on the ground for um i don't even yeah. know a week here and then a week a couple weeks ago and there's still you know the whole plant isn't green but there's still green slivers down by the uh the more closer to the roots and the cattle right. will find that out pick it out in the and that makes great feed for them they love a little bit of green in their diet this time of year yes but. sir yes sir well the other aspect of that that i was going to bring up was we circle back to earlier we're talking about community and diversity as far as regenerative ag and regenerative practices like there's stability and diversity you know there's resilience there with yeah. diversity so if yeah, if we're looking out at a sea of fescue, and that's like pretty much all that's there, yeah, we might risk a little bit more of that toxicity and end of fight stuff. But we have to consider too, if we would have a well-rounded diversity and mixture of a bunch of different things going on, you know, now you're taking in a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of fescue, you know, that that's also a different story than just, you know, 90% diet full fescue you know what i mean yeah you're absolutely right and that's that's a huge thing that i want to bring up too is yes we have a lot of fescue but that isn't all that we have too like like you said the diversity you know we'll we'll have red clovers white clovers lespediza um orchard grass timothy bluegrass you know in the summertime we'll get you know uh, gamma grass indian grass uh big blue stem little a little bit of little blue stem we'll get uh let's see what else we got uh uh what is the other one? Korean? No, there's Korean lespediza and Cerisia lespediza, which is not the best for grazing, but the cattle will eat it. Um, then there's, uh, you know, you got all kinds of like broadleafs and, you know, plantains and, and just, there's just so much out there that in the summertime, they're just getting a huge diversity of their diet. And, and so like, for example, the Cerisia lespediza, I learned this last year from Greg Brand at one of the uh, grazing schools was, the Cerisia lespediza has a 
has a little, I don't know if it's the, the tannins in it or something, but it helps yeah. offset that fescue toxicity. And so we'll see the cattle go through and that nasty Cerisi Lespedes that you think nothing will eat, cattle nibble the ends, the tender spots, and that helps them with that, that fescue toxicity. So it all kind of works together in a, you know, in a beautiful system that that's uh, resilient and, and harmonious, or is that a word? Yeah. Har- harmonious, yeah. something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's cool to see. Um, they, you know, there's, there's a reason that, that nature doesn't have one species and, and, mm-hmm. and that there's, there's many species present because, because that just builds resi- resiliency. So yeah, yeah that's and a I great think, point. I, I think when you have the right genetics, those animals are smarter than we give them credit for. Like they, you know, and even Fred Provenza talks about this in his studies, you know, like you get the right genetics, the right uh, ancestry and knowledge passed on down the line animals will know hey i just ate this i'm feeling kind of this way i need to go grab some of this you know like absolutely um, we don't give them credit for that but they're very capable of not not, maybe not all of them you know it it might be an individual or family basis but um yeah they definitely have that uh, what's the word i'm looking for um uh, self-regulating in a way but yeah um i Um, I can't come up with the word right now you're saying i can't think of it uh yeah. yeah, they can they can That's pick okay. what they need. They can they can self self uh, self medicate. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, yeah. there we go. We we got there. There, yeah, we did. And and that's another so, thing too. That we have the the free choice. We do use the free choice enterprises. It's the same thing. We've got sixteen different slots of minerals that they can choose mm-hmm. from, and they'll go up there depending on what the forage is lacking, and they'll pick what mineral they feel that they need, and then that mineral is then passed through their system. And right out onto the land, and so over time, you know, this land is becoming remineralized with with everything that it's lacking. And so that's that's a cool thing about the free choice that I like is it's able to uh, it's kind of like a, a self uh, I don't know, yeah. know what you call it self limit or self decreasing mineral mm-hmm. program. So right, and let's let's take a step in this direction. That's not really what this episode is about, but you know, we could talk, talk about the subject of epigenetics here, you know, it's mm-hmm. kind of what we're alluding to with this, which for anybody that's never heard that word, it was just a couple of years ago that I had never heard that word for myself, but we're basically talking about the genetics, the intellect, the know-how, the thrivability of animals that are born on farm, having been exposed to things while they were in the womb, basically, you know, yep. The mother is interacting with your landscape, your environment, the vegetation that's there, and the baby is reaping all the benefits of that. And when they hit the ground, they are that much more capable of thriving in your particular context. Yes, absolutely. Um, And I think that's another thing here, too. So I I might tie this together in in two ways for the topic at hand. But this is actually something that Greg taught me at that conference when he's talking about epigenetics. And one of the things he said, and I'll never forget it, is you know, the, I think he was talking about bulls, you know, breeders at that time. And he said, yeah. you know, the best, the best bull that you can get is the one that comes from your farm. Yep. You know, and he had to hammer on that for a second for, for me to understand it. Cause when, when you're not used to thinking that way, you're always bringing in those new genetics, you know, and cycling in not to get too far into closed herds and, you know, line breeding or anything like that. But yeah, it, it's true. You know, you, these animals are being, 
geared and wired to thrive on exactly what I have going on here, exactly the kind of forage that mom has been eating, um, exactly the kind of winners that we have, you know, so right now, yep. um, my calendar, I'm, I'm dropping lambs right now. I just had a few this weekend. So we're in the beginning of February and a lot of people would frown upon that. And yes, I could, I could do a better job of making that calendar line up, but at the same time, you know, if, if I've got the right individuals, the right mothers, the right use, um, we can make that work and they will be all the stronger for it, you know, and the right. same applies to the grazing and interacting with that and being able to thrive on stockpile. So using what you have as a herd genetic or getting the genetics that can do it and then allowing that to express itself is huge. So absolutely. do you want to weigh in on anything on the, the livestock side of that before I move on or? Yeah. And, and you're exactly right with that the epigenetic side is huge because, you know, you can take Greg's genetics, you can take the animals that he's developed on this land and you can bring them even in the same like climate, you can bring them 10, 10 you know, 10 miles down the road. And, and some guy that's just continuously grazing, he could get those genetics and the genetics would not do as well as they could just because, yeah. you know, the genetics or the, the animals that are born there, they're like you said, they're born into that, whole management system the whole environment every factor that comes into play in like a grazing system affects the calves that are coming out there and so even you know even the same climate you know you can you can limit you know you can bring the factors you can limit the amount of factors that you change but even just changing a few factors can have a you know an effect on the uh the the outcome or the the um the animal that the animal's productivity and yeah. so uh, uh steve campbell i don't know if you're familiar with him he's from i think he's from idaho he came out and did a talk um to a we, we have a green hills farm project up in north missouri that we've been with that greg is a part of and mm. it's just a group of you know grazers that they're all kind of like-minded in their practices and and anyways we had him out for a winter annual meeting or it's kind of like a little mini conference that they put on and and he he had a talk about epigenetics and how, you know, at the point of conception, even the health and the mineralization of both the sire and the dam, even at the point of conception have an impact on that calf, you know, yeah. the rest of its life, like every factor. And it, he said, even, he even said, I think he made the point, you know, especially at the point of conception. Um, but, you know, just all those factors really have a, have a hand in, in, the calf that's coming out um, and, and dropping on your land. And so, yeah, like you said, if you can get, you know, the genetics that are in the right size, the right, you know, the right frame, the right weight, the right tolerance to your environment as close as you can, and then just keep those genetics and try to multiply those genetics on your farm. Try to, if you, if you're at enough size, you could try line breeding um, and just try to build a breed that's as closely uh, or that is, best adapted to your place that you can and you'll do the best you know you'll do way better than trying to just always be bringing on new thing new genetics and all the newest yeah. bull here from you know idaho and this newest bull over here from you know iowa and, and all these things um because animals animals it's hard on animals to move move environments like that i mean well they'll be sometimes they do okay sometimes they do well sometimes they do terrible and so you know it's a change in their environment when you bring an animal any kind of a distance um and so there's you know you never know how they're going to react but the closer you can get 
to an animal that's adapted to your environment, the better they're going to do and the better you're going to do as a grazer and as a manager. So Absolutely. that's what I would have to say. On. So I could talk a long time about that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I could do the same. We That's yeah. Maybe that'll have to be another episode sometime. Epigenetics. Yeah, I'd, I'd be, I'd be up for that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, just a quick break in the conversation. So I can tell you about Regensylvania. Regensylvania is a network and a movement that I've started here aimed at regenerating Pennsylvania through hearts, minds, and stomachs, or to say relationship, education, and commerce. And we're doing that right now. We're onboarding farms county by county, collecting regenerative farms that are looking to impact their communities and get with customers. So if you're a regenerative farm in PA and you would like to join our Regensylvania network, send us a message on Facebook or Instagram under Regensylvania as well as if you're a customer just looking to buy product from a regenerative farm in your area, in your county, somewhere local, shoot us a message so that we can connect you with a local regenerative farmer. Back to the conversation. So that's that's the livestock side. And I guess I bring that up to say, because there's a few people that are asking questions and it's the big question of, okay, what species, you know, if we're going to stockpile, what species um, and so we mentioned uh, fescue and you routed off a few others there. And I would come from the school of thought, you know, until you really notice and know and can relate to the vegetation that's already on your property, I'm not one to go and just totally overhaul it and give it a makeover. Like my, my general advice to people is start with what you have. Like you, you'll probably be honestly surprised to, to watch animals interact with the vegetation you're already growing, you know? Yeah. Um, but there are some people who are, they've got the equipment, they want to do it. They're ready to seed into it. Um, so if you could with me, Isaac, let's spend a little bit of time on the species. So we talked about our, our fescue and the endophyte. Are there any other species that you guys have in your mix, either planted or native, um, that really shine bright as far as a stockpile forage? Um, as far as native, there definitely is not, I mean, fescue holds up the best as far as staying green all year round. Orchard grass will stay somewhat um, green until probably around December. And that makes pretty good feed up until then. And then after that, it'll just turn brown and, and they'll still eat it, but it does not have the quality that fescue has. Um, cool. Clovers. So when, when we're able to stockpile enough forage and we get enough biomass out there, um, it almost acts as like a like a mini greenhouse for those clovers, and you'll we'll find you know two inch tall little clover plants green growing underneath the fescue in the wintertime, um, just because the fescue takes the brunt of the cold or the frost or whatever, and the clover can kind of stay regulated underneath of it. And so we'll get a little bit of clover um, that'll show up. We don't do any kind of planting as far as cover crops or or. Uh, you know, like seedings of, of, of plants. Um, I know, well, I'm sure, I know you're familiar with Gabe Brown. Um, he does yeah. a lot of like, you know, grazing cover crops in the wintertime. And, and I think someday in the future, when I go back towards home, that's kind of the way I'd like to lean is to some, someday end up, you know, more towards Southern Michigan where I'm from. Um, I wouldn't be opposed to, plant you know looking into planting some kind of winter cover crop to then graze as winter feed i mean obviously that's not a foolproof system as in you know you're, you you have to get the seed to germinate and stuff like that but um 
Greg sure. Brand, who was, you know, he spoke at the grazing schools a couple of times and he'll be coming here in the spring to our advanced grazing school and, and speaking. He, he made the comment that the cost, and I don't know if that's true anymore because of the, the you know, the way everything's just going crazy with prices, but um, the cost of putting in a cover crop as in like drilling, you know, all your, your, your equipment costs and stuff like that to the feed quality or feed amount that you get from that is just about equal with, you know, buying hay and feeding hay. Um, that's what he's found. And so, and obviously that's dependent on a lot of things as in like, you need to make sure that cover crop, you know, the cover crop has to actually make a stand and such, but, Right. Um, just the you know to be able to maybe graze a cover crop in the winter i've i've thrown around that idea and that's probably something i'll i'll experiment with and play with in the future um where there's you know because i come from row crop country where it's either cows or dairy you know or you know, i mean it's either yeah. uh, row crops or dairy there's no beef cattle or nothing um so that might be something that i uh dabble in in the future um and I guess I'll just go into this too while I'm uh, kind of on the topic. It's kind of a mm -hmm. little bit off topic, but um, something I've thought of, and this is just an idea that I've had uh, in, in areas where there's a lot of, you know, row crops going on and, and farmers are, um, they don't, they don't have anything going on in the wintertime as far as in their fields, you know, their fields, fields are sitting fallow. Yeah. What does it look like to, to work with the farmer They've got the equipment. They've got the experience of, you know, planting. What does it look like to go up to a farm? Hey, I'm going to, you know, you got to obviously develop that relationship. But look, yeah. I'm as a grazer, I'm going to pay that for this cover crop seed. If you will put it in, you'll it'll be on your land. You'll get the benefits of the animals, you know, the manure, the disturbance, the uh, carbon put down. And I'll get the benefit of the winter feed. You know, maybe that would look. And there'd obviously be a lot of factors that have to be, you know, ironed out, but maybe that sure. would look like a great uh, relationship to have with a crop farmer who maybe, maybe even it's a, you know, like a no-till organic producer who is into the cover crops, but just doesn't really know quite how to integrate livestock or doesn't have the livestock that they, and they don't want to build this whole enterprise up when they've already got their farm running you know, someone that has the livestock could come in there and, and, uh, you know, take advantage of that winter feed that they could then, that they could put up and then they'd get the advantages of having the cover crop on, um, yep. all winter long and, and just the animal manures and stuff like that. So that's something that I probably will make, you know, I'd love, I'd love to kind of pioneer that and try to figure that, that, uh, situation out in the future. So we'll, yep. we'll see how that works out, but that's just an idea that I had and it kind of ties in with, the whole winter feed side of it. But, um, as far as like forages, the fescue is the biggest one in the winter time. Um, it'll, it'll even, the fescue will even as the, the snow and everything breaks down that fescue, the protein in the fescue will, will, uh, increase over the winter. Um, I don't know the exact numbers. Okay. I think it'll, it'll increase a little bit. And so by the end of the winter, it will be pretty good feed, you know, not nearly like, like feeding clover or alfalfa, um, but it'll have some protein in it enough to keep, you know, cattle's rumen functioning properly and, and keep them in good health. Um, yeah. But yeah. I mean, Kentucky 31 is the big one for us here in, here in uh, central Missouri. So, yeah. 
No, that's that's perfect. And I think that's the question a lot of people have with stockpile. They they want to know what species and, and what kind of shelf life are we talking here for? You know, how long is this going to hold any kind of nutritional value? So that's yeah, that's right. And obviously, at, at the beginning, I asked you to just talk from your context and your understanding. Obviously, you go other places, other states, other countries, you know, yeah. different vegetation, different context, different stories. So we're just talking about what what you guys do and what you see and what you observe and um, and I appreciate that with uh, the fescue aspect. Um, and I was going to say, too, as far as regenerative agriculture, I think it's something that doesn't just end with the soil or animals or anything like that. But the community aspect that you're talking about, you know, building these relationships mm-hmm. and pockets of farmers, you know, locally, they can be very relational. Like a lot of times they depend on bartering back and forth with equipment and services and all that oh, kind yeah. of stuff. Um and sometimes as the young person or especially a, a non-traditional new young farmer, it can be hard to jumpstart those relationships. Um, but I think you're totally on it. You know, we, we got to do stuff like that. One, for the sake of the soil, for the sake of the mutual benefit. And then two or three, just the relationship in the community. You know, yeah, um, I think I think that's huge. And I think that is also regenerative. You know, we need those yeah. communities to uh, communities and relationships to, to last and, and get passed on for any kind of large scale regeneration to actually happen. So I'm glad yeah. you mentioned that. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I guess one question I would, I would throw out here. I don't know that anybody asked this, but so for somebody that has the hay baling equipment and is addicted to making hay bales, why would somebody want to stockpile instead of just make it into hay bales? Well, the biggest the biggest thing, um, it goes kind of back to costs. Um, mm-hmm. you're, you know, you're and and like you said, you know, a lot of people love to make hay and if that's, that's a hobby and that's something you love to do and that's something that you get a lot of satisfaction and, you know, I'd say just go for it. But what I would say is look at the costs of, you know, baling hay, especially now with the prices of fertilizer, which, you know, hopefully you know people would be using more organic or more uh uh, whatever you uh natural fertilizers you know maybe maybe in like chicken litter or something but even still the the prices the input prices even you know diesel you know everything's going up right now and so if if you've got a four-legged animal that's that's able to walk around harvest it itself and and fertilize at the same time as opposed to a you know rusting machine depreciating machine that needs uh diesel in order to run you know it needs costly inputs you need you know netting you need you know all these things um yeah you know tires tires blow out you know engines fail i mean the the cost side of it is just a huge one if, if you can just graze it with the animal you're just going to be saving a huge huge cost and then um another one is just the ecological side of it too you know you don't have a big tractor running across your land you know uh you know compacting your soil you've got a cloven hoof that's you know breaking up the the carbon and and you know because because the cloven hoof spreads apart as it walks so that 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 motion helps to chop up all that ground litter and and turns it into um, foods that you know earthworms and stuff can can uh, metabolize easier and so, you know, it's just a, it's just a more natural system. You don't have, uh, you know, fumes, I mean, you know, fumes going out 
uh, I'm not even gonna get into that because that that opens up a whole other can of worms. <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, you don't have a lot of the costly inputs that are there just are gone away with when you're just when you just graze it with a with a cloven hoof and a, and a, her, a herbivore. So right. I don't know. Plus, I just find so much more satisfaction. I I okay. I will confess, I do enjoy making hay. Um, I built <laughs> hay for um a guy when, when I was working in high school or a couple different guys and I enjoy it. Just, you know, there's something it's kind of soothing about it. And I understand that. And that's why I, I, you know, if I, someone, if that's a huge hobby for them and they just find so much satisfaction in it, you know, I'm not going to condemn them for it. Cause that's, you know, everybody likes to do their own thing. And so that's cool. But sure. I would say if you're looking at both ecological factors and profitability, um, there's just no question that grazing stockpile is or grazing with animals is so much more uh, so much better than than bailing up hay. But sure. and I know for myself, like I don't claim to be a mechanic of any kind. I hate breakdowns and working on equipment. I hate trying to fire up equipment in the dead of winter and it's difficult. And mm-hmm. I would much rather like walk out there on foot and do something myself than have to rely on equipment. So for me, that's kind of a no brainer in that regard. And I remember Greg always harping on, you know, you had, like you said, you, we've got these four legged ferment, uh, fermentation tanks out there that can do the harvesting for you. Like just Mm -hmm. be the steering wheel, you know? Um, and that always stuck with me. And I guess my, my only suggestion for somebody that maybe is choosing to go hay bale route would be, and you can tell me if you agree with this, but if you're, if you're going to cut and make that hay, try to feed it out in the same spot so that the mineral cycle gets returned. Um, it's getting rolled out, or at least it's getting set in the same spot. And that same field or pasture, whatever it is, is Absolutely. getting the animal impact that it, it maybe would have got robbed of if you bailed it, you know, but maybe try to feed it out in the same spot. Would you agree with that kind of thought I, process? Yeah, I would agree a hundred percent. So 80%, you're only going to be able by, you know, cutting and bailing hay, you're automatically going to lose 20% of the, the uh, nutrients that are in there just to evaporation and stuff like that. So yeah. you're going to lose a little bit from bailing hay, but if you can feed it back onto your farm, you will definitely reap a lot more benefits than if you're just selling it off your farm. It, I mean, selling hay off of uh, off of a piece of land is one of the hardest things on a piece of land. Um, yeah. There's so many farms around here that are just solid broom sedge now because farmers never put anything back into it as far as fertilizer goes and just bailed it until it turned to broom sedge and their cows wouldn't need it anymore. And right. so uh, making hay, it's it's a uh it's a tough one because i know a lot of people like it and enjoy it find a lot of satisfaction in it but um think about this and this kind of goes along with that is we all you know if you're if you say well i need hay to feed through the winter so i'm going to make hay well why not just buy it because buying hay the cost of buying hay i don't think you can make hay unless you're like a professional contract a hay contractor it's very hard to make your own hay for the cost that you can buy it from some, from a professional contractor or hay contractor. And so the cost is, you know, negligible. It's about the same. So if you can 
buy that hay and bring it onto your farm, you're just bringing on extra nutrients, all that. There's there's $30 worth of, which there might be more now, the, the price of fertilizer, but there's $30 worth sure. of N, P, and K in every round bale. And so if you think about that, um, you're, if you pay 65 bucks for a round bale, you're just bringing on that fertilizer right back onto your farm. Um, yep. And so it's it's like a, a net, it's an increase in fertility and, and you're not losing and that's what that's what we do is we bring 100 percent. we buy 100 percent of our hay we don't bail anything on the farm um greg tried mm-hmm. it like a couple times and got seriously burned and it just it uh it just makes sense to, it, it's like a it just makes sense to bring it on when there's people that want to bail hay for a living you know let them bail it they've got the equipment they're they're dealing with the breakdowns and they'll give you the bales for the price and we, we'll even get it delivered the, the contractor that greg has is a great guy and greg's worked with him for a while and and so he takes good care of us and we take good care of him and it's a good relationship mm-hmm. but um yeah i mean it's it's uh definitely if you are gonna if you're stuck to that i need to bail hay i want to bail hay at least feed it on your land don't sell it the amish sure. won't even there a lot of amish communities won't even it's like illegal for them to sell hay off of their own land like they're yeah. they're, they're uh i don't know pastors or whatever they're uh the bishops or whatever they're they're mm-hmm. uh, people in charge they won't let them uh sell their own hay just because they understand that it takes nutrients to grow that hay that forage see it's different than a like a, a corn or uh, beans you know or like a cash crop because when they take a cash crop they're still leaving a lot of those that carbon back on the land um you know in the form of just chopped up uh corn you know corn stalks and stuff and so there's still a lot of that getting returned and plus some a lot of them are fertilizing you know most most farmers are fertilizing um but uh haying is just you're just taking everything off everything that was growing there at that point is just stripped from the land and so that's just super hard on land but right no matter how you graze ken cove has the gear any forage anywhere with any livestock ken cove has the supplies you need to make your grazing operation more efficient for fencing that holds back livestock and not your productivity visit www.kencove.com 100 100 all right isaac i've got Two questions left on my slate. Are you up for it? Yes, let's do it. Okay. All right. So here we go. One would be, and this is context driven as well, depends on the animal, depends on the area. Um, how much snow have you guys seen cattle root or dig through to get at stockpile? Um, here, Greg's cattle are kind of spoiled or lazy or something, but they don't really <laughs> like to, they don't like to graze through more than about two to three inches especially so i'll say this too it also depends on the snow because you know how fresh snow is real powdery they can go through that a lot easier than you know like you were saying your snow melted and then it froze again it's crusty that's really hard for cattle to get through that's Um, tough yep but greg's cattle they'll go through about two to three inches the the big factor is can if they can see that stockpile poking above the snow if they can see you know blades of grass they'll go in there and, and search it out um but they they won't dig if they can't see it or if it's if it's too deep um but there's there's different breeds i'm sure your uh, your highlanders can you know they'll dig down probably pretty deep to get to get it forage um 
there's uh there's another breed that's called the well like the not necessarily the belted galloway but the the normal galloway um they'll do pretty good in the winter time as far as you know making a living for themselves digging through the snow and, and getting forage right um, greg's cattle i don't know if they're spoiled or they're lazy or what but they don't they don't like to dig too much now the sheep <laughs> The sheep, it's amazing. The sheep will dig through four feet of snow, just like a deer to get feed. They'll just dig yeah. down, paw at it, get them a big old hole co- uncovered and just eat that spot. And then they'll go and make them another one. It's it's amazing. Um, yeah, that's wild. Yeah, super cool to see, see them do that. But And I guess another factor would be, like you were talking about, you know, what height are we leaving that stockpile at when we left it? So obviously, if you leave something that's taller, even if it's getting windblown or snow drifted, it probably stands a better chance of still being found and dug up because it's kind of propped up. Yeah. And and yep. then, like you said, the more the more of that greenhouse effect you have, the clover and thing like things like that underneath are also getting that benefit. So it probably also yeah. depends on the height that you left the stockpile at. Yeah. And the quality, you know, some farms. We, we have a grass that's called love grass. It's a warm season that shows up in about end of July mm-hmm. and they'll graze it for the first 20 days of, of, of it being, you know, expressing itself. But once it puts a seed head on, they don't hardly touch it. It just is very poor quality. And so some, there's quite a bit of our farms that are starting to, we're, you know, we're, we're taking it back, but it's, 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 it's got a lot of love grass on it and they won't, you know, they won't even, they won't even bother with that. Um, won't even graze it in the winter time, even if they see it. But if they see that fescue, they see that little bit of green, they'll go out there and dig it out and and then pick it out of the snow and eat it. So, yeah, yeah, very cool. Um, the other question we have here, this was from Matthew, uh, and I think this is a great question as well. So he's basically asking, how much land do you need in order to stockpile or to do it successfully? So is there a scalability factor to this, you know, to the large size or to the small size, or do we think that we can do it in kind of any size environment? I think the, uh, the beauty of the system that we do, how I was talking about stockpiling on the whole farm is it's less dependent on the, the scale and more dependent on the speed or the, 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 the stocking rate that you have, or, you know, there's a lot of different factors, but definitely yeah. like, your management in the fall comes into huge play. So if you've got, you know, if you've got 10 head on, on 40 acres or something, just, you know, practice those methods of, you know, springtime, you speed them up as quick as, you know, speed them up quick, graze it quick. Then once the summer hits and it gets into the summer slump, slow them down a little bit, make them graze it a little farther, or, you know, a little harder just to kind of buy some time out in front of you. And then once that summer come, you know, starts, you know, August starts to come around, at least here in Missouri, August starts to come around. Once that spring or that fall flush of growth starts to spike back up, which I will say this too, I think up there in Pennsylvania and I think over in like Southern Michigan where I'm from, there's not as pronounced spring and fall flushes. Like I think it kind of more blends into itself just because you don't have the heat that they do down here in Missouri. Sure. Um, but you know, here in Missouri, it'll, it like fescues and stuff will almost go dormant in the summer. But once that fall growth starts to pick back up and, and we start to get a little bit of growth coming, that's when we really start to skip graze that as quick, you know, get in there around there as quick as you can leave as much leaf litter as you can. And, uh, so that when the grains do come, you can grow a little bit of grass and save up for that, you know, 
and stockpile that grass for the for the winter time. I don't think it's it's scale dependent or scale. It, it doesn't it doesn't matter the scale. It, you know, it's just more about the management that you do. Um, sure. That really comes into play, and your stocking rate. You, you know, you really want to be. We'll we'll sell animals in the fall just to, you know, decrease the stocking rate so we can make it through the winter better. You know, you, Greg's got a threshold that he knows he can kind of make it through um, based off of experience as far as like animal units. Um, so we'll try to get down to that level or maybe even a little bit below just just to be safe through the winter time. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, springtime comes, everything starts to calve again. Our herd is back almost doubled. You know, and so it's just like a constant cycle of, of, you know, growing to meet the grass there and then decreasing to meet what, you know, to, to, uh, to be able to make it through the winter time. So, yeah. Yeah. I got you. Um, what was I going to say there with that? I, I, I was going to ask, do you or Greg ever see reaching a, a year where, and it obviously depends on weather and growth and all that kind of stuff, but like, is it on the radar to go 365 without, Hey, like, is that feasible or within sight for you guys there? Yeah. So Greg's with Greg's situation with the seed stock, um, it makes economic sense for him to buy a little hay in the winter. Yeah. Cause he can, he can afford, for, for, I'll just be honest with the prices that he's able to get um, from a seed stock, he can afford to put some hay through animals in order to get, you know, have right. more head to come through the winter to then get, you know, the, with those prices. And so um, that's why, that's the main reason why we, we feed a lot of hay. If we wanted to be, you know, more closed loop and um, not, not feed much hay, we could do it. We'd just have to stock down to that right. Um, right. stocking rate and also so i will say to that since you know we're talking about cattle's not cattle not wanting to graze through um snow it's really good to have at least a little bit of hay just for nasty weather and times when you yep. just can't graze but as far as like amount of grass and then you know we could we could jump down to that level or destock to that level to then just go straight through the winter um, just grazing stockpile, but because of Greg's market, it you know it makes more sense to hold on to a little bit of head and feed a little bit more hay throughout the year. Another thing, point to that too is, um, and Ian Mitchell Ennis, which is Greg's mentor, talks to, a lot about this: is having more head or more, uh, yeah, more animal units. The more animals you have in your herd, it's like having a bigger horsepower engine, and you right. can do more good faster. And so having the, the more more animals it allows you to increase it effect or you know increase your fertility your productivity you know you're you're just your ecological soundness a lot quicker the more head you have like it's like so he had ian has four thousand head over in africa he's not doing the grazing anymore his son's taking over it okay uh, but he's got four thousand head and 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 uh or maybe it was it was two thousand head on four thousand acres that's what it was okay Gotcha. He had, he had 2000 head on 4,000 acres and, uh, he was grazing that. And then he, he started growing so much grass that he couldn't keep up with, um, with it all. And so his cattle were getting thin because he was having to graze more lignified stuff. And finally, I think, I can't, I don't want to say who it was, um, that told him this. It might've been, uh, Mark Bader. Don't quote me on that either though. Okay. Uh, but told Ian, we'll just, 
sell half your farm, you know, if, if you're growing that much grass. And Ian's like, oh, maybe I should. But he didn't sell it because in Africa, if you sell your farm the way like their government is, he'd never be able to get any more land back. So instead, he just quit grazing. Half. So his, his farm is split by a big river and he grazed okay. both sides. There was like 2,000 acres on each side. So he just stopped grazing one side and he sell that, sold that as thatch to the locals. And okay. then he used the same amount of head on the, on, the, on the one side of the river. Um, and he's still able to make it work. Um, and that's, you know, that's just a testament to having those large herds, how much, yeah. and, you know, how quick it can turn it around. He's also in a more arid environment. So that's, you know, that comes into play too. That right. more arid environments or brittle environments um, respond differently than, than more non-brittle environments. But yeah, sure. um, having those, I forgot where I was going with that, having that, that you know, large, oh, having that many head. You know, Greg's by by keeping a little bit more head, we're just doing more good over the span of the year too. Um, so that's that's right. another reason too. Yeah, and so I agree. I think the question of stockpile it can be scaled up or down. It's going to depend on the property. It's going to depend on the stocking rate. Um, it might depend on if like you're trying to go 365. Like I know Russ Wilson up north of me here in Pennsylvania. He said mm-hmm. that this, this year will probably be the closest year that they get to going all year round. Uh, but he's also doing the the planting and the cover cropping. And, oh, yeah. you know, he'll grow some corn and send the cows in there to clean up the corn, you know. So it's not all just straight um, forage. So it has to yeah. it depends on the context. And like you're saying with Greg, um, you know, you guys are trying to sell a market genetics, you know, so that animal needs to look a certain way. To, to get the price that's on it versus yeah. somebody that's just trying to survive through the winter and get to the other side, that kind of thing. So I think it is scalable. I think it's doable no matter what you're just going to have to find how it fits your context and your needs. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. uh, um, another, uh, I forgot what I was going to say to that. Anyways. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> complete, complete loss thought, but, um, yeah, you're good. Well, yeah. is there anything else on the subject of stockpiling that you feel like we should mention for the good of the audience? Yes, you just help me remember. Um, okay. March. March, we call March Mud Month. Mm. So what we like to do using our, you know, just like planning it out is we like to have a bit, you know, a chunk of stockpile as far as like land that once March comes and we start getting rain and it's not frozen and it's just becomes a mud pit, it's very nice to be able to graze in March as opposed to feeding hay because feeding hay in the mud is one of the worst things to do in the winter or it's like the most miserable things to do in the winter time. And so we try to feed enough hay throughout the winter so that when March comes, we've still got grass left to graze, especially the end of March um, when, (laughs) when uh, green grass is starting to kind of poke, that that stockpile that we have left over when that green that spring green grass comes through that brown you know old dried up fescue those cattle are going after that nice tender green grass and as they're grabbing that tender green grass they're grabbing a bunch of old dead material too with it or you know lignified stockpile with it and that really really helps balance out their gut in the springtime and it keeps a lot of 
keeps them from having, you know, a lot of like this, you know, runny spring manure that they, they usually have. And you'll, we'll, we still get a lot of, you know, loose manure, but having sure. a little bit of stockpile saved up for the end of March. Um, Cause we get, we get our first grazable grass as far as like just hundred percent grass uh, around April 7th. And so okay. you're, you're, you're probably a little bit later than that, yeah. but yeah. Uh, just having that little bit of stockpile, for that first week or two of the spring growth really helps with cattle health and also just uh, pasture health because that little plant isn't going to be nipped off to its roots right at the beginning. Um, okay. So saving, saving a little bit of stockpile for March is, uh, is one of the bigger, you know, it's, it's just huge for uh, grazing in, in the mud month of March. Yes, so. Nope. That's a good one. That's a good one. Other than that, I think I'm. I think we've covered a lot of t uh, a lot of it. Those are those are some great <laughs> yeah. questions. Yeah, it was good questions. Good good topic overall. Um, man, I'm so thankful for you joining us here tonight. It's a pleasure to sit down and get to chat with you. I know we we message back and forth here and there, but it's good to just to sit yeah. and, and talk with you. So I appreciate you taking the time for myself, but but more so even just for the community, anybody that's listening and uh, trying to gain some tips as they as they graze and as they stockpile. So thanks, man. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. I, I really enjoy I really enjoy doing these kind of things and and doing what I can to, you know, share what I've learned and what, you know, and just growing, like you said, growing that community and, and trying to become better grazers as a whole I, I really appreciate you having me and and uh you know talking with me and and you had some great questions and and everything so sweet you bet man. hey if uh if anybody's trying to look you up or follow along with what you're doing where's the best place to send them yeah so head over to my instagram um isaac tappenden all lowercase all one word i do some posting on there um not crazy regularly but i try to i try to post a little bit on there and and i may start doing some of the the podcast or the chewing the cut again i've been throwing around the idea um, okay mm -hmm. and then maybe some youtube work in the future but we'll see we'll see on that okay um, but yeah for right now head over to the instagram and and that's where you'll get the most of the content that i'll be putting out there so good yeah. deal bud all right well, hey, man, thank you so much. I'll, I'll let you get back on with your evening there, but thanks for taking the time to join us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. We'll see you, Eli. All right. Take care, buddy. Well, there you have it, guys. Great words from Isaac. I'm so glad he could join us on the show and, and share his firsthand stockpile experiences there with Greg Judy. If you haven't heard of Isaac or Greg or Green Pastures Farm or Regensylvania or Ken Cove, the people that helped put this episode together and contributed to it, Go give them a follow, give them a like, jump on their website, see what they're doing, and get involved with those folks. Find folks in your own backyard that are in this regenerative ag movement um, and partner with them in any way that you can. So I hope this episode was helpful and it gave you uh, some tips and some notes for stockpile grazing. If you have any other questions, reach out to myself or Isaac, and we'd be happy to either answer those questions or put you in touch with somebody that can do that. Um, so thank you guys for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'll catch you on the next one until then keep grazing or stockpiling or bell grazing, whatever you're doing until actual spring gets here. So thanks guys. Catch you on the next one.